Everybody here know what culture shock is? Heard the term culture shock? Nobody? A few people? Um, you know, the reality is nowadays, with the modern technology the way it is and aviation and all that kind of stuff, you can literally get on a plane in Windsor and step off that plane in a few hours into what seems like another galaxy, another world. Maybe I'm exaggerating a little bit, not, 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 not like another galaxy, but it can often feels like we're entering a new realm. We get culture shock because we're used to how it is here and then we get on the plane and then it's totally different somewhere else. You know, people eat differently, they act differently, they drive differently. Remember last week I mentioned when I was in Jamaica, I noticed that everybody honks the horn, but it's a friendly thing. They always honk to say hi or, or to greet. It's never like a mean thing. I never, I heard a lot of honking in Jamaica, but not one time did they honk out of anger. So I was a little bit confused. It was like honk, honk, honk. I'm thinking, well, these people are like really mad all the time, but I didn't realize, no, actually, they're just saying hi to each other. They speak differently. People elsewhere value different things. It's just, it's just different. And like I said, this happened to me in Jamaica. But, uh, but, but the, the, the shock of the culture when I landed in Jamaica soon turned into something positive because I grew to love the Jamaican culture. I loved how chill it was. You know, I love that there were maybe it was just on the resort. Anybody here been to Jamaica? Okay, um, I didn't notice anywhere I went a single clock on the wall. Now in the resort, maybe that was on purpose, I don't know. But like in the shops, and there was just no clocks anywhere. It, w it was almost as if in the culture in Jamaica, they just didn't care what time it was. It was like, hey, it's all iry, you know? Everything is good. No, no, no problem, man. No problem. There's never no problems. Now it's probably just a resort thing. I'm sure there's actually problems everywhere. But at least where I was, they kept telling me no problem. But for all our differences, you know what? If we boil it down to a singularity, the truth of the matter is we're all fundamentally the, the same. We are all made in God's image. Every human being, Canadian, Jamaican, uh, you know, Italian, you name it, the nationality. We're made in the image of God, the true one God. And only He can satisfy our souls. In the gospel, this good news that we proclaim every week here is cross-cultural. The gospel isn't just for one uh, nationality. It's, just, it's not just for one ethnicity. The gospel is for all people because all people are made in the image of God. All of you here I'm looking at are reflecting to some degree the image of God. People in Windsor are made in God's image the same way people in China are made in God's image. But tragically, sin has tainted that image in us. It's marred it, shattered it. But it's still there in some form and we reflect it in some way like a broken mirror still reflects the image before it, albeit in a tainted and marred way.
talking about planes and stuff. There was a plane. The gospel message, the good news of the death and resurrection of Jesus is the missing piece here because in Jesus Christ, God transcends cultural differences and he reveals himself as the savior and satisfier of the soul of every single human being regardless of where they reside or where they're from. And that's the beautiful thing about the gospel. Look around here and you see people from all different uh, uh, ethnicities. Now, I wasn't How many people, I want to do a little trivia. Not trivia, uh, a survey. survey. How many people were born in Canada? Raise your hand. How many people were not born in Canada? Raise your hand. Well, what, what do you think, Dave, about 50-50? 60-40. 40 for what? 60-40 born in Canada. That's amazing. People from all... I don't think Angela raised her hand. She was not born. I don't think she was born here. So, almost 50-50 now, right? You counted her? Okay. Um, so, what we see here is the gospel of Jesus Christ bringing together people from all over the world to be united together under one master, under one Lord, and he did it all. Because his message reaches the hearts of every person because we're all made in God's image and he's the satisfier of the soul, the true satisfier of the soul. So after um, some harassment and some trouble we learned about last week in, in Berea, uh, Paul finds himself aboard a ship approaching the city of Athens. Now something you need to know about Athens is that uh, it was the philosophical and intellectual religious capital of the Roman Empire. People in Athens were intellectually inclined, very open-minded people. It was, it was like a, a sort of a melting pot of worldviews, a melting pot of ideas. And Athens really, when you think about what Athens was, was not unlike our city, Windsor. Now, of course, Athens was uh, a lot greater than Windsor, uh, 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 pound for pound. However, uh, it was not unlike it. See, in Windsor, we are also a melting pot of different worldviews, different religions. In Windsor, we have Buddhist temples. In Windsor, we have mosques. We have churches. We have Sikh temples. We have Hindu temples. We have places of New Age gathering where people gather to meditate and and practice new age stuff and and any sort we even have witches did you know that there are like witch covens in Windsor and I know I know a few of them they they go to churches and they cast spells they try to at least um, anything you want as far as a religious ideology you can find it in Windsor it's here Acts 17 and verse 16 says this now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Sorry, I forgot to turn my microphone on here. Let me just do that quick. Did you know I didn't do it, Terry, and you just didn't remind me? We can hear you. No, I know, just for the recording here. Sorry, guys. I haven't done this because we've been sort of secret church. 
the pandemic and uh, the ensuing irrational restrictions that were imposed and are imposed on us have revealed a lot about the culture here in Canada. Uh, but one thing it has clearly, clearly revealed is our idols, our <coughs> idols. Paul went about Athens and his spirit was provoked because he saw all these idols everywhere. In moments of crisis, your object of worship becomes very clear. You know, a lot of people say, I'm not religious. I'm not, I don't worship anything. That's a lie. Everyone is a worshiper. You were made in God's image to worship. Now, the problem is we don't always worship the right God. And the idol that has been clearly uh, uh, seen and, and revealed in Canada is the idol of self-preservation. The last year and a half or so has revealed that we are an incredibly selfish people. Now, Canadians around the world are generally stereotyped as what? Nice, kind, compassionate. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. You know, somebody walks by you. Oh, I'm sorry. For what? I don't know. I'm Canadian. I'm just sorry all the time. But that's actually very far from the truth. We may say we're sorry all the time, but we are a very idolatrous, selfish people. We've sacrificed the mental health of our children. We've sacrificed the livelihoods of hundreds of thousands of people and families. I met a guy at the river yesterday who said he lost his business and all this kind of stuff. We've sacrificed the lives of people who weren't able to get life-saving treatment, people with cancer, people with uh, a situation. Oh no, we have to put that on hold. You know, and we've sat back and allowed people to die alone, alone tragedy and as I walk the streets of Canada my spirit is provoked within me because our country is so full of idols and perhaps the most prominent idol in the town square is a stone with an inscription on it that reads you you me that's the most prominent idol. Although Canada is full of all types of people from all backgrounds and religions and so forth, as a people, we are idolaters to the God of me, myself, and I. We would suffocate someone under a cloth mask so we can feel safe. We would pressure our neighbors to get a vaccine, even if they don't want it, so we could feel safe. We would have pastors arrested in front of their wives and children. You know, that happened in Alberta. A pastor was arrested in front of his children. The cop said, we're coming to arrest you. Make sure your wife and children aren't there. He said, and if you're going to do it, you're going to do it in front of them. That happened in Canada. We would lock up his messengers. We would harass his worship. All because as a nation, we worship before the altar of me. Oh yes, this whole... This whole thing has been under the guise of public health, but look a little closer and you'll see there's not a drop of concern for the public. Why are gyms still closed? Enough said. If this was about your health, gyms would be open. But they don't care about your health. 
And this ought to provoke us. We as Christians have Christ as King, our, our worldview is Jesus, and we're living in a time when the stark contrast between a Christ-centered worldview and a godless secular worldview has never been more divided and clear. As Paul walked about Athens, he was cut to the heart. He was provoked as he looked. At, he saw all these idols everywhere, just statue after statue and temple after temple for all these different gods. And as a worshiper of the true God, uh, Paul's heart was provoked. It was cut when he looked upon these images, made to fill the chasm in the hearts of men and women that only Christ could fill. The city was so full of idols that one author calls Athens a forest of idols. When people look back in Athens, uh, you know, as a historian, they go, yeah, that was a forest of idols. People just worship so many gods. It was like, you go into a forest, there's so many trees, you can't, you get lost in, in, you know, you get lost in it. There's so many. So I ask you, is your heart provoked by the idolatry in our city, our country? Are you bothered? Are you moved at all? Or have you been able to insulate yourself from the wickedness that is growing out of control in our in our nation here. Our country's degenerating uh, rapidly and we must be provoked by it. It's incredibly, it is incredibly, you know, people say, Alan, you're not very loving. Well, maybe I'm not, I don't know. I'm not gonna say I'm the most loving guy in the world, but I know this one thing. It is incredibly unloving to sit back and do nothing while your nation plummets to its demise. People say, oh, Alan, it's only going to, you have, haven't you read the Bible? It's only going to get worse. You know, like just, so, so what? So just do nothing? And just sit back on my rear end and eat potato chips and hope the Lord comes? No, we, that's not what he calls us to. Charles Spurgeon said this, look, let me, before I quote Spurgeon, let me just say, if it must plummet, if our nation must plummet, if we must, you know, be destroyed, at least let it plummet at the sound of our voices crying out, repent, turn, you know, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And if it plummets, it plummets. But if it doesn't plummet at the sound of our voices crying out like a voice in the wilderness, then shame on us. Spurgeon said it best, as he always does. Second best. He said, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. Christianity is a call to sacrifice. As I was talking to my brother Steve here yesterday, we were talking about dying to self. Christianity is about dying to yourself, giving your life to Christ, like the cross is a, is a symbol of death. Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow me. What he's saying is die to yourself, die to your ambitions, die to what you thought life was about and live for me. It's not a call to self-preservation. It's a call to, to sacrifice. And so God help us. And so, so he sees Paul, the abundance of idols. He's provoked. They're everywhere. And so he goes to the synagogue in the marketplace, as he always does, and he begins to reason with the people about Jesus. And as Paul reasoned with the people in the marketplace, some Greek philosophers began to converse amongst themselves. And they said this in verse uh, 18. 
Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And so some wanted to hear more about Jesus. You know, these guys were like always talking about new ideas, and they go, what's this guy saying, this babbler? Blah, 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 he's talking in the square, all this. what's this babbler saying? And, and it sounds like he's preaching some foreign divinity, some foreign god we've never heard of. And so they brought Paul to the Areopagus. Now, the Areopagus was like this bare marble hill they had in Athens. It was also called Mars Hill. And it was used uh, by the court of justice who would meet in the open air, sort of like we meet in the open air, to discuss a bunch of issues. Now, if you were invited to the Areopagus to speak, it was a significant thing. You know, it wasn't like every day they, they just went, went down in the market and said, hey, you want to come speak at the Areopagus, random guy? No, they wanted to, if you were speaking there, it was because they wanted to know what you were saying. You had something important enough for them to want to waste their time on, if you will. It was where new ideas and philosophies were discussed and judged. And so let's jump down to verse 21. It says here, Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So it's kind of like the universities, right? All they did is sit around and talk about stuff. So Paul was kind of like invited to the, the high university of Athens to come and, and speak. And so he was in the middle of this cultural melting pot, standing in the open air on this marble rock, about to address the intellectuals, the, the smart people, the philosophers of his time. And the cultures and worldviews of those at the Areopagus, you know, they may have been diverse, but the gospel was coming now to bring clarity and reveal the true God to all the people. So how does Paul, now this is important because here we have the context. A bunch of people with diverse views, intellectual, so-called smart people, want to hear the gospel. So how does Paul bring the gospel? To, how, how, how does he preach it to them? So first he begins by finding common ground. So verse 22 here says, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. So he walks around Athens, and what Paul does is he's provoked, but he's also studying the idols of the city. He's observing and reading, you know, oh, this idol, this idol, and he sees one um, that says to the unknown God. And he perceives it, he perceives, man, these people are very religious. And so what he does is he looks for where God is at work in the city. When I was a new Christian, uh, I was very curious about everything to do with Jesus. You know, Jehovah Witnesses loved me. Because when they knocked on my door, I answered it. <laughs> and, and, and when I answered it, I didn't just answer it and um, shut the door right away. I set out the patio furniture. I got some drinks, some cookies, right? And we sat down. I'm like, let's talk. And we would spend hours and hours and hours uh, uh, talking about the Bible and, 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 and just talking about Jesus. And guess what? When the Mormons came over, I did the same thing. Let's talk. I wanted to know everything. And I was especially curious uh, to know what the false religions believed. 
You know, I, I believe it's super important for us as Christians, if we're going to bring the Christian worldview into conflict with the lies, we got to know what the lies are. Now, I'm not saying to sit around all day and study false religions, but we need to at least have a basic understanding of them. So Paul spent some time, not a lot of time, but he spent some time observing uh, the idols and learning about them a little bit. He studied them, but not for head knowledge. He studied them for the purpose, uh, the specific purpose of bringing Jesus into conflict. Do you have something for me, Jack? Do you have a, 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 a picture for me? Thank you, Jack. Very generous. He wanted to study them so that he could bring the gospel into conflict. So that's the important thing. When you're studying false religions, when you're, when you're uh, talking to Jehovah Witnesses and so forth, do it so that you can learn how to bring the truth into conflict with the lie and overcome the lie with the truth. That's why Paul was doing it. To, to determine and discern where the true and living God was at work. So first our hearts have to be provoked by the idolatry that surrounds us. Then we have to look for where God is moving among us. Look, God is not lazy, okay? He doesn't take time off. God is always at work around us. We just need to pay close attention. So soon Paul finds an inscription that was dedicated to the unknown God. So some in Athens were so religious that they didn't want to miss any God. You know, sometimes we pray, uh, like, uh, you know, in the prayer meeting, sometimes people say any unspoken requests, right? We don't want to miss anything. So we cover our bases. The Athenians were the same way. Well, maybe there's a God we don't know exists. And so let's make an inscription to the unknown God just in case to cover our bases. It was an insurance policy, sort of, a religious insurance policy. Just in case there's a God we don't know about, we got to be safe here. So, there's many people in our community, believe it or not, that also have this altar to the unknown God in their hearts. I was one of them. I was kind of one of them. You know, at some points, you know, in my teenage years, I would say, you know, I didn't believe in God, I was an atheist. But the fact, the deeper reality was, I did believe in God. I just didn't really know who he was. I believed in the unknown God, the one we all know exists, but the one for which we just don't really know. Now look around the idolatrous country of Canada, and if you look closely, you'll see the altar to the unknown God all around you. Romans 1, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 19 says this, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. What's he saying here? He's saying everybody knows God exists. Why? Because God has made it plain to them. He's shown it to them. His invisible attributes, who he is, has been clearly perceived in the things that have been made. And then he says this, they are without excuse. The word excuse is the Greek word apologia. Apologia, actually. I'm, I can't roll my G's, so. It's, a, it's where we get our English word apologetic. Paul is saying all human beings have no apologetic. They have no argument before God to say, oh no, God, I didn't, you didn't give me enough evidence. I, don't, I didn't believe in you. No. You have no excuse. You have no apologetic. You have no arguments. 
Everyone knows God exists. It's plain to them. They have no excuse. And although this is true, they still don't know exactly who he is. And I'd like to put it this way. You might say, Alan, you're contradicting yourself. No, I'm not. It's like this. It's like a boy who has no father knows he has a dad. Why? He knows this because everything about his existence points to the reality he must have a father. He just doesn't know who he is. It takes a man and a woman to make a child. And if the father disappears from the child's life before he's born, the child still knows, I have a father. I just don't know who he is. People are so afraid to die. They're so afraid to get sick. Why? Because they know there's an unknown God and it scares them. Now, this is the common ground we all have. We all know God exists. We just don't exactly know who he is. People don't want to die because deep down inside they know this unknown God is waiting for them. And they're unsure whether he's pleased or not. So they do all they can to prolong their lives. It's our job to make this unknown God known. That's what the gospel does. It makes the unknown God known. His name is Jesus. Paul sees this as an open door and he runs through it. He says, you people worship this God as unknown, but he has sent me here to tell you of him more accurately, to tell you who the unknown God is. And this brings us to his second strategy. He uses the common ground to correct the error, and there are a lot of them. Verse 24, he corrects, he corrects their errors. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made for one ma from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should all seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet it is actually not far yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we indeed are his offspring. Every human being is made in God's image, and Paul knew this. He also knew that even in cultures that didn't worship the true God, there would be remnants of God's truth because they're made in his image. But because of sin and our selfishness, the image of God is tainted, it's marred in us, and so Paul must begin by correcting their misunderstanding of the unknown God, of the true God. So let me just summarize what Paul says here, okay? He says, God, the true God, the unknown God, is Lord of all. He doesn't live in temples made by humans. He is not served by human hands. He doesn't need anything from us since He's the giver of life. He made all people. He's sovereign and in control of all the nations. He placed people in their nations for the sole purpose that they might seek and find him, yet the truth is not far from all of us. So let's stop here for a second and, and realize what Paul just did here. Paul just essentially told these people, these intellectuals, he says, everything you thought you knew about God, almost all of it was wrong. <laughs> almost all of it was wrong. Paul pretty much says the foundation of your religious worship is flawed. Everything you know about God or the gods or whatever is misguided. And this unknown God you seek 
to know is actually the true God and all the rest are dead, false idols. So Paul corrects their errors about God and now he's going to remind them of the true things they believe about God. So he says this, he quotes from their own poets. Imagine that. Paul quotes from a, a, a pagan source. He says, in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. So here we had two beliefs in Athens that were widely accepted but contradictory. The beliefs were this. Number one, God can be served by human hands. And number two, we live and move and have our being in God because we're his offspring. One is true, one is false. Paul identifies the true and shows how it's inconsistent with the false. Let me put it this way. Either God is reliant upon man to prop him up in temples and fashion him with gold, or he's the one that sustains all of us because we're his creation. It cannot be both. It cannot be both. And the Athenians believed both. They believed you could prop up the God in the temple and that he had to be served with human hands and fashioned with gold and polished. Oh, and if the, if the idol falls over, oh, sorry God, let me help you up. They believed that. But then they also believe what the poet said, that we live and move and have our being in him. Well, which is it? It can't be both. And Paul exposes that inconsistency. And then he bridges the gap with the truth, which leads to his third strategy. Bridging the common ground to preach the gospel. Exposing the lies to preach the gospel. Verse 29. He says, Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So Paul reasons, since we're God's offspring, as you all believe, we should not think of God like gold or silver, an image that we make from our imaginations. God, he says, has overlooked the ignorance of former times and is calling everywhere, all people everywhere now to repent. Now there's that R word. The, the, the dreaded R word that is like the most foul, vile uh, a term you could, you could ever say in our culture. Repent. Oh, that's so religious. Oh, you're so holier than thou when you say repent. Well, just like, let's take the stigma. You know, there's a lot of talk of nowadays about removing stigma, right? We got to remove stigma from everything. Every, there should be no stigma. So let's go ahead and, and follow that logic and remove the stigma from repent too, okay? Repent is not a nasty, bad word. Repent means to turn, to turn away from something. You know, I can repent from all types of stuff, not just sin. You can repent from anything. You can turn away from anything. The water's too cold in my pool. Oh, I repent from going in there. You know, you're just turning from it. Repent is not a bad word. And Paul says, the times of ignorance God overlooked. Now he's calling you all to repent. It's a good thing. He's calling you all to turn away and, 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 and come to the truth. You don't have to live in ignorance anymore. He's coming to judge the world in righteousness, he says, by Jesus Christ. Now, how do we do this, Paul? How do we know this, Paul? Well, 
Number one, we repent by simply turning, and we know it's true because he tells us, he's given us assurance in one cosmic historical event, the, the, the greatest event in human history, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, this Jesus that he proclaims, this Jesus I proclaim is no longer dead, but he's alive. And those who believe in him have eternal life. No other religion in the world has this sort of a foundation. Why should, you know, people, why should I believe Christianity is true? Because he's alive. That's why. It's not a, it's not a hard question to answer. You know, go through every religion in the world and ask, why should I be this? Why should I be, why should I be a Buddhist? So you can find Nirvana. Well, who cares about Nirvana? What is that? When I grew up, Nirvana was a band. Um, and why should I be a Muslim? Well, because, uh, you know, you might go to heaven if, if Allah decides. Do I have any assurance? Not really. Now, I was talking to a Muslim lady once in the grocery store. She saw my shirt, asked me for some good news. I told her about Jesus. She said, oh, yeah, I'm a Muslim. I believe in Jesus. I said, oh, that's great. Um, are you going to go to heaven when you die? She said, well, I don't know. I said, well, I know. And she got offended. No, you don't. No one can know. I said, no, I know. Do you know why? Because Jesus is alive. And he told me that if I believe in him, I'm going. And she said, no, no, that's not how it is. You can't know. That's very offensive to, be, to have confidence like that. So why should I be a Muslim? So I can maybe go to heaven if I do the right things? But even if I do all the right things, you know, Allah might say, well... He didn't really do enough right things. Why should I be a Christian? Because he's alive. The solid evidence. Found, foundational history. It's the resurrection of Jesus that proves that everything that Paul has said about God is true and accurate. All the idolaters, all the idol worshippers, if you ask them, why should I worship your idol? They would say, well, maybe you shouldn't. Maybe you should worship this idol or that idol. There is no assurance. The idols are dead in their, in their cold. You know, like a dead body is dead in cold. So is an idol. But Jesus is not dead in cold. He's warm. He's alive. He has, he, he, he has fire in his eyes. This is always our goal, to get people to Jesus, to proclaim to them the resurrection. And we should never seek to simply win an argument. We should always seek to tell the world about Jesus and what he has done. And that's the ultimate ar argument win anyways. You know, don't be distracted by people's, um, they're called hobby horses, stuff that they just like to talk about. You know, I remember one time we we're out evangelizing downtown and there was a woman standing, well, when stores were a thing, <laughs> a woman standing outside of a store handing out uh, I think they were like 10% off coupons to the clothing store, whatever it was. And so we got talking to her and I was with a guy and uh, she, we're like, hey, you know, we're giving food to people. And they're like, what are you doing? Oh, we're giving food to people, telling them about Jesus. She goes, oh yeah, yeah, uh, uh, I'm taking evolutionary biology at the university. You know, I believe in evolution. And the guy I was with, his eyes just got big and he's like, no evolution is this and this and he got it he literally like if this was her face he was like here 
Like, this was before social distancing, but still, it was too close, right? So I, like, had to literally get in between and go, whoa, whoa, settle down. And I told him, listen, we're not talking about evolution. No, no, no. I said, listen. I grabbed him by the arm. I said, we're not talking about evolution right now. Because I don't care. I, what, am I going to spend an hour talking to this woman about evolution? And then, and then I leave and never say anything about the resurrection and she dies and goes to hell. Even if I win the argument, I lost. So I said, no. I said, listen. And so uh, I said, okay, evolution, fine. I don't even want to talk about that. Let's talk about what is true. How do you know what is true? How do you determine what is true? What's your foundation for knowledge? And we started talking about these things. And, I said, and well, she said, well, how do you know? I said, because Jesus is alive. See how easy it was to get to the resurrection? And then we actually started talking about the resurrection. No, Jesus is alive. We talked about it, how he died for sin, how he rose from the dead, how we know this happened, historical evidence. And next thing you know, she's going, you know, I, we could have left that conversation with her saying, ha, these stupid Christians believe the world was made in two days or whatever they said, and I'm, I'm smarter than them. But instead, the conversation left with her saying, you know what, I never heard this before. I'm going to think about this. I'm going to research this further. And what was she researching? Was it evolution? Was this, No, it was the resurrection. It was the resurrection. So don't get sidetracked with stuff that really doesn't matter. Those conversations can happen later. I'll talk about evolution with you for, for days if you want. But if I only have one encounter with you, I'm not going to waste my time with that stuff. So Paul left her midst and... Or her midst. He left their midst. Uh, in, in, in Athens and, and some of the men there joined him and, and they believed. So Paul enters Athens as an outsider, as an alien there and he was in the city filled with idols and, and lots of different beliefs and he enters this context with an exclusive message. Jesus. You know, notice how Paul didn't try to make the message fit into the diversity. He went in there, he said, look, I see you're religious and stuff, but Jesus is the only way. Jesus is the only salvation, the only truth, and all other gods are false in, in the creations of men's hands, and they're lifeless. And so the context of Athens is like the context of Windsor. We live in a culture of differing religious and ideological beliefs. You can't really go too far anywhere without finding someone that has a, has a diverse belief. You know, do, do an experiment if you want. Go to 10 people and ask them what they believe about God, and you'll get 20 different answers. Thanks for laughing, by the way. I know. 20 is more than 10. Get it? How, thank you. How can we take a message that says Jesus is the only way and give it to a culture that says, no, there are many ways? Oh, that's challenging. Or, or, or that says, no, no, Jesus isn't the only way. I'm the way. I've heard people say that. Well, no, I determine what's right and wrong. This is how we do it. Number one, Paul finds common ground. There was an inscription to the unknown God. He used this as his entry to speak about Jesus. Number two, he uses the common ground to correct the errors. This unknown God is the creator of all things, not confined in temples built by man, since he gives life to all men. And then he says, look, even your own poets have said, in him we live and move and have our being, and we're his offspring. So then how can God be made by men if he made us? Number three, he uses the common ground to preach the word of God, the gospel. He says, since we're all his offspring, we shouldn't view God as being made as silver and gold. But he's overlooked this ignorance that we once have. 
had, and now he calls us to repent because he's coming in the, in the person of Jesus to judge the world, and he's given us assurance by raising him from the dead. I mean, what more assurance do you want? So repent and believe in Jesus, and you'll be safe. So let's do a, a, a case study here. Let's say you're talking to a Muslim friend. It might look something like this. Number one, you find common ground. Look, the Quran speaks a lot about Jesus. The Quran props Jesus up as a holy man, even chief among prophets. Number two, use the common ground to correct the error. No, Jesus is holy, but he's more than just a prophet. He is God in the flesh. He's the Messiah who came to take away our sins. And even the Quran calls Jesus the Messiah. Even the Quran calls Jesus the Word of God. So then you use the common ground to preach the gospel. Look, the Quran says Jesus is Messiah and he is the word of God himself. So God is revealing to all men that Jesus is the truth, the only savior of the world. And, and, and that means, in the means by which we should all have forgiveness of sins and eternal life. The gospel is cross-cultural. You could do this with anything. You could do this with an atheist. You, you, know, you, know, a, you know, an atheist said, well, I don't believe it, it, God exists. Yeah, but you, but, but, okay, so let's follow the steps here. Uh, find common ground. Well, you, but, but you live like a Christian. You think murder is wrong? Well, of course. Well, why? Well, because I say so. No, no, you're made in God's image. You're revealing the image of God. So then you use the common ground uh, uh, to, to correct the error. No, you're made in the image of God. You, you live like a Christian. You think murder's wrong. You think you have ethical uh, uh, inconsistencies. You know, if you really don't believe God exists and you're just a, a cosmic, uh, uh, you know, glop of cells, then who cares if you kill somebody, right? It's just more uh, a matter hitting uh, more matter. You know, it'd be like if I, uh, I don't know, if, if, if I took a stick, you know, you know, what's the difference between killing somebody and two sticks hitting each other? It's just matter. Who cares? But that's, are you offended by this? Will I go to jail for this? No. Who cares? It's two sticks. But if I take a stick and jab it in your eye, that becomes a moral issue. <laughs> Why? Because you're made in God's image. You know that's wrong. You know that's wrong. So you live like a Christian, even though you say you're not. You live consistent with the ethics that are true, regardless of what you believe. And so Jesus comes to open our eyes to, and you preach the gospel. This works for anybody. It's cross-cultural, cross-ideological, because we're made in God's image and it's true. So our job as missionaries in this culture is to bridge the gap between what's true and what's false and bring this life-giving mes life message of Christ to everyone uh, uh, that will listen without discrimination. The gospel reveals the true God in all cultures. And that's why the Bible is such a supernatural book, and it's survived this long. I mean, a 2,000-year-old book about a guy who has said to have been raised from the dead should be pretty outdated by now. But it's not. It's so relevant. That's because he's the truth, and the truth isn't... The truth isn't affected by... is not affected by time. Truth doesn't get outdated. It transcends time. And so does Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your goodness and your grace and your word and how even in 2021 in Windsor, Ontario, we can read this story 
uh, about Paul in Athens and how he um, engaged with the people of his time and, bring, and brought the gospel to them and, and, and the message of Christ, the hope of the resurrection. And so I pray, Lord, that we would um, become, you would make us skilled gospel um, teachers and, and you would help us, Lord, to bring the message of the gospel into conflict with all the inconsistency and sin in our city, in our circle of influence. Give us grace and strength uh, as we go from this place, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, um, feel free to stick around. It's a nice day. You don't have to leave. Fellowship with one another. God bless you again. Prayer on Tuesday at my house. Bible study at Dave's house at 7 on Thursday. Please sign up for our email list, our text messaging list for updates. Uh, other than that, God bless you and have a great week. Is there another song? No. Okay. God bless you. <laughs>